The following transmission contains unencrypted instances of explicit language. Mature audiences are cleared to proceed. Dave, you ever get that situation where your boss kills your girlfriend and tries to frame you for the murder, and then he puts you in charge of framing yourself even though he doesn't actually know that you're the murderer? Man, I hate when that happens. <laughs> Shall we begin? This week, we are once again bringing you a movie whose status as a spy movie is debatable. At its heart, it's a neo-noir political thriller whose characters just happen to be involved with, or at least adjacent to, intelligence agencies in Washington, D.C. circa 1987. I'm Todd. And I'm Dave, and we like to talk about spy movies. Here at Spies Like Us, we do like exploring the outer boundaries of the spy movie genre, and this one gives us a healthy amount of tradecraft to dissect. We're talking 1987's No Way Out on this episode of Spies Like Us. We got here, let's see, 1987, it's a contemporary movie, purely fictional. Agencies featured are the CID, which we're going to talk about which site CID exactly the characters are referring to later in the show. Uh, we also see the CIA and the KGB. All these agencies have fairly small roles in the story, but our main character served in naval intelligence before taking on a special assignment for the Department of Defense. Uh, you remember when I first was telling you about this movie that uh, it's not a spy movie? Well, well that's debatable. But what, at least I told you, it's not a spy movie per se, but it's more like a kind of like a murder mystery noir film that is ha- happens to be set in and amongst intelligence agencies. So, right, fun, fun one to do. That's um, a good way to describe the movie. Sure. There's tons of intelligence and Department of Defense and all kinds of government, like military agencies involved. And then there's like a murder mystery. Right. And I checked and during during research for this, um, I found out, you know, my description was, was you know, because I was telling you, like, it could have, for instance, been set uh, in a police department, you know, and, and been the same story. Right. Uh, or, or other or other spots in research. I found out it's uh, based on a 1946 novel, which it's the same story, except it's set at like a New York magazine, something like time magazine or something. Um, Oh, really? mm -hmm. And so it's, it's a reporter and the editor, you know, the, the guy and, and his boss. Um, And then they made a movie in 1948, also set at a magazine. There's another French movie in 1976. It's called Police Python 357. Boom. There you go. Presumably that one is, uh, you know, a cop versus his chief. Oh, okay. The core, like the core conceit of the movie, which is pretty ingenious. It, it is what runs through all of them is the situation where you have uh, two guys. One of them works for Guy A works for Guy B. Guy B kills a woman. And Guy A knows that he did it. Guy B knows that he was seen by somebody, but he doesn't know who. He doesn't know that it was Guy A. And then 
decides, well, I'm going to try to frame whoever that was and gives his subordinate, Guy A, the job of like proving that it was Guy A that did the murder. It's pretty, it's kind of convoluted, but it's a nice little engine to build a story around. Right. Uh, There is a spoiler in the movie. I question like how, uh, you know, sometimes I listen to, you know, if I haven't seen the movie, I come across podcasts like this. Sometimes I'll listen to the podcast first or I'll listen to it at least deep enough to decide if I want to watch the movie. And sometimes I'd rather listen to the, the people discuss the movie before I go watch it. This is a 1987 movie. The spoiler, it's kind of big, but also kind of insignificant. Here's your chance to run off if you don't want to hear it, just if you're a total purist. Okay, cool. Uh, Gene Hackman character is going to try to frame, he's guy B, and he's going to try to frame guy A as being a Russian spy. That's Kevin Costner. And at the very end of the movie, you find out Kevin Costner actually was a Russian spy, which is, how do you feel about that? Just as, just as a movie mechanic. Um, I kind of felt like it was really unnecessary other than to explain a few things. Like it was just kind of like, Hey, by the way, he was a Russian spy the whole time. And it had nothing to do with the entire movie we watched. Yeah. It's not Um, exact. It's not exactly like finding out Bruce Willis was dead the whole time. Right. Right. Yeah. Uh, This this definitely could have taken some notes from M night Shyamalan. (laughs) There's one reviewer that said it's actually a better movie. If you showed up five minutes late and left five minutes early. (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm. (laughs) <laughs> right, <laughs> the, the, I I would agree with that. the The beginning of this film was not that interesting until like the actual like plot kicked in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, it seemed you know I generally like more setup with things and things taking their time to marinate, but um, I think it's important to not just have uh, a bunch of stuff that. I mean, it just, it just didn't, it didn't affect anything. You know what I mean? Like you you go through this whole like romance at the beginning, which I guess made you feel worse about the murder, but I don't know. It seemed like a lot of fluff and and I think they could have cut a lot of the beginning of the film. So, but technically the fact that Kevin Costner is a Russian spy, even though, like we said, like it really doesn't impact the story at all. That does technically make it an actual spy movie, like in a, in a legalese sense. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, and he was naval intelligence, right? Yes. Even if he yes. wasn't the mole, he was naval intelligence and he was doing intelligence for Gene Hackman. So I, I, I would call this a spy movie, even though we don't get a whole lot of spying other than the trying to solve the murder, I guess. Sure. And so since the fact that he's a spy, like, has such, so little impact uh, on the whole movie, I thought we'd talk about that kind of at the end of the of the recording. Like, that'll come out, like, next week. We'll go back and say, like, does, does you know, now that you, if you, now that you know that he's a spy the whole time, do all of his actions make sense at knowing that fact along the way? Right. I think we'll have some good conversation on that situation. This is a movie, you are new to the movie. Uh, I got a history with it. I was 16 when it came out, although I didn't, I didn't find it until video. So I guess I was 17 when I found it. 
Uh, I did like it quite a bit. I watched it more than a few times. Um, I'm a very, like, my, my at core, I'm a very science fiction fantasy kind of guy. Uh, and especially as a kid, I was. And, you know, I think it was just like coming into my teens. This is around the time when I started actually paying attention to movies that didn't have st- a spaceship or a dragon in it. <laughs> uh, I think this right. is. I think this is around too when I when I really started to dig on Hitchcock movies, and mm. there's this is, there's there's a whiff of Hitchcock in this. Very well received by critics. Uh, it's got a ninety one percent fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, um, and it's uh, it's also kind of interesting that it's um, the beginning of Costner. He had showed up in the summer in the un, it's the Untouchables, right? Yeah, right. And that's that's the same year. So it's the Untouchables and No Way Out. And and before that, there's like nothing you've never you've never heard of Kevin Costner before this. It's No Way Out that really uh, made people say like this guy can totally carry a film as as your handsome leading man hero. Yeah. I like, especially ever since I noticed the ordering of known for on IMDb with Argo. Uh, uh-huh. And, and I looked into it and I noticed that like, Oh, like, you know, you can put those in the order you want. And for mm-hmm. big stars, I really assume they have a PR. This is just assumption on my part, but I assume they have a PR agent that would be doing this job <laughs> i mean that seems right. like the bare minimum <laughs> run my imdb page for me right so i assume it reflects like what kevin costner wants us to think of first when we when we look him up and uh you know what his number one is it's the what? it's the postman really yeah Even before dances with wolves it's right before dances with wolves so same same with affleck uh, he's featuring. He's pushing his director stuff up ahead of his just acting stuff. Uh-huh. Um, but yeah, I now I like the Postman, but a lot of people did not and do not. Right. <laughs> I liked it. I I liked it a lot, but I would think they'd put Dances with Wolves up first. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because well, that's the award winner. That's like an award sweeper, as right. opposed to the Postman, which just tanked. Yeah. Um, but it could, it could be one of those things of like, you know, maybe again, this is all just on my theory that, you know, it's actually Kevin Costner wants us to think postman first. Is this maybe just one of those, like, you know, like, Hey, come on guys, take another look, take another look. It's not as bad as it's not as bad as you heard. <laughs> right. <laughs> I, I, I wouldn't be surprised cause, uh, his movie, uh, open range is actually one of my favorites. Uh, as far as like cowboy movie goes, because mm-hmm. um, you know, like growing up, when you know, I think of westerns, I just think of some like desperado that just rode into town, or like some posse that's gonna go get the guy. But I really liked Open Range because it was actually about cowboys. They drove cattle, and the first gunshot wasn't fired till like way halfway through the movie, and it was already a pretty long movie. But like all the gunshots were like super real sounding instead of like pew pew or something like I remember as a kid watching Westerns and I remember an interview with him, you know, they started asking him questions. He was like, look, it's my movie and it's the way I wanted it to be. And like, so I I, I wouldn't be surprised if he was like, yeah, put the postman number one. 
that that's the movie I want people to know. Right on, right on. Yeah, I, I'm. I like it. Anything post-apocalyptic, it just gets like an extra star from me, like right right out of the gate. Uh, pretty hard to go wrong for yeah, me. Yeah, I remember you were saying you wanted to maybe try and talk about post-apocalyptic movies at some point. Yeah, that's 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 if I had if 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 I had a friend that was as much into them as as you are in the spy movies, I would be doing the <laughs> right. movie podcast. Um and uh hey, just before we depart from the postman, that's also uh Will Patton, uh Costner and Patton working together again, uh and and opposite of each other, you know, like hero versus villain. Uh, 10 years after No Way Out comes out. Brad Pitt shows up in this film. He's an extra. I I saw that and and didn't believe it. So I just checked it. And oh my God, there he is. He's just in the background smiling. (laughs) 1987. Nobody, nobody fucking knows who Brad Pitt is at this time, which is also weird to imagine. Yeah. Um, He doesn't... uh, he doesn't really show up. He doesn't really hit any like actual character roles until uh, 1991, where he shows up as the charming drifter in Thelma and Luis. Yeah, and, and of course he's the stoner on the couch in True Romance. True Romance, best role Brad Pitt ever. <laughs> yeah, and yeah, she yeah. condescend me with the honey bear bong. Oh my god, I I always love seeing him in that movie. It's great. And uh, last note on the movie, uh, uh, worth noting, the scriptwriter just died like uh, a month ago. Oh. Um, at 83. Oh, well, that's Robert, a... Robert Warner Garland, thank you for a good script. I think it's a good script. I think you have questions about the dialogue. Do you want to talk about the dialogue now before we go to briefing room? I'm just going to say my quick piece because, I mean... I... Look, I don't want to make it sound like it's a crappy movie. So if you haven't seen the movie, like the actual like plot and like a lot of the tradecraft and a lot of the situations that are set up are like actually really good. And um, but this is a very 80s movie The just the dialogue is just like super like it reminded me of like the comedy bits in like old black and white movies that are like super on the nose. Like, here's a joke. You know, or like, here, let me say something like classy, you know, or something like that. Uh, and the dialogue seemed kind of mechanic. Um, like, it, it just, I don't know. It's, I feel like the, the, the script was written with the bullet points and then the dialogue was just kind of put together to get to the bullet points. Um, so if you, if you can get over the dialogue, the whole film, it's, it's actually a pretty good, fun, like, kind of setup. And I, I enjoyed watching it kind of play out. Yeah, I know. I know that was a point for you because you kept laughing uh, through the entire the movie. Yeah, <laughs> it didn't hit. It didn't hit me quite the same way. But maybe it's because it's a movie that that you know that I I came up with. I mean, I came up alongside. So eighties right. eighties uh, stuff doesn't eighties stuff doesn't look as weird to me as it does to uh, someone of your age. And uh, well, I think it's because you grew up with it. Like, yeah, totally. there's a lot of movies that like I grew up with, and I I bring that as I watch them again later, and I still think they're great. Which is like, this is the first time I saw this movie, and I was like, oh yeah, they used to write movies like this. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I was kind of laughing the whole time at the dialogue. 
Briefing room? Yeah, briefing room. Let's go. Retinal scan complete. Validating security clearance. Clearance granted. You may now enter the briefing room. So, yeah, a lot a lot of this movie is going to, uh, you know, unpack the romance between, uh, wow, I'm blanking on his name already. Tom, uh, oh, yeah, Tom oh, Farrell. Tom Farrell, that's right, yeah. Yep. Tom Farrell and Susan. Uh, you know, we're a spy movie podcast. We like to talk about tradecraft. So, uh, we're not gonna, we're not, there's not much for us to say about, uh, the romance part. I did want to say real quick though. I thought that Sean Young delightful as always that I thought she played tipsy really well. Like she's in different scenes. She's a different level of drunk. Like some places like she's on her second glass of wine and, Right. In other scenes, it seems like she's on her eighth. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I liked watching her. She definitely plays, like, the flirt really well. And the, like, I'm going to enjoy my time at this, like, uh, highly prestigious political uh, gala, I guess we'll call it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I enjoyed watching kind of her, you know, play the flirt with uh, Costner. It was kind of fun. The tipsiness thing reminded me of uh, an anecdote from Big Lebowski, uh-huh. where apparently Jeff Bridges would, um, like, at the beginning of every scene, he would go up to whichever of the Coens was directing, and and he would say, do you, do you think the dude would have burned one, like, right before this scene? <laughs> and they would think about it, and, and they would, yeah, 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 I think he would have. And Jeff would say, right. And he would like rub his fists into his eyes real hard to like to like make them red. Uh-huh. And I like to think of Sean Young like at the beginning of each scene asking like, "How many glasses of wine am I up to exactly at this? Right. <laughs> Is it two? Is it four? Because I'll, I'll play right. it different if it was two or four. Right. Uh, <laughs> and then we got this backstory about a phantom sub that. Uh, military contractors apparently are working on. Apparently the CIA is uh, a big booster of this phantom sub project, but the current department of defense secretary Bryce played by Gene Hackman. He doesn't like the phantom sub, Um, but uh, the CIA is kind of massaging really key and powerful members of, of the Senate and so it's just kind of like that's the little political tug of war that he's currently engaged in. Mm-hmm. And that is a nice setup for him to bring Tom Farrell on board onto his team because uh, like like what he what he wants is someone that can kind of mm, well, that first that knows a lot about submarines and naval intelligence kind of stuff and. Tom has got that. He's got two Navy tours, uh, two tours with Naval Intelligence. Uh, And if anybody's curious, I looked it up. Uh, Currently, a Navy tour is six months at sea. So that's what that is. And also, Tom just, uh, you know, did this heroic rescue at sea kind of thing that kind of got his name in the papers. Uh, Mm -hmm. It doesn't hurt that uh, Bryce's... Uh, general counsel, in other words, like his attorney, not his personal attorney, but the person that 
this uh, is assigned to function as the attorney for the office of the secretary uh, mm-hmm. is an old friend of Tom's and speaks well of him. So they bring him on board and kind of give him, give him the lowdown of, of what he's supposed to do and put it in his ear. Like, look, what, what I really want you to do is get, get the CIA's like real estimates on this phantom something, not the official stuff, not the, whatever the um, cleaned up stuff that's supposed to make it look like better than it is. But like, what's the real raw data? And I like, I really like the line that Gene Hackman feeds Tom Farrell as he's bringing him on board that says like, this is great because you're a military officer and as such, you're above all this political nonsense, which (laughs) which is great. That's huge plus politics points, I think, for Bryce. Uh, because he's exactly dragging this guy into all this political nonsense. That's that's what it's all about. Yeah. So fun with that. Now he's trying to get the raw data from the CIA, but uh, when they do hand it over, it's it's the official estimate, not really what they wanted. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I do want to give this my number three best tradecraft. Ooh, what you uh, got? Uh, it was really th- this is kind of what established the character of Tom Farrell as like a like a like a competent spy and even someone that could pull off like the the big werewolf game that goes on later on um so we get a scene where he's first kind of meeting everybody and he kind of plays dumb like he doesn't know what he's going on he's just like you know asking questions he's like you know I'm I'm like oh weren't you briefed I'm like well not really, uh, but, you know, if I'm going to be working on something, I kind of want to know a little bit about it, you know, like, so he, he really, really, like, from the get-go kind of, like, sets the tone of, like, oh, I'm a military guy, I just need info, um, you know, don't worry about me, you know, type of thing, so I, I marked that as my number three best trade group. All right, very good. And so, yeah, that's that's the whole... Uh, I don't know, situation that uh, puts the characters into play because along the way, like, you know, rubbing elbows at the same kind of parties, Tom meets Susan, they begin having an affair. He's aware that uh, from the get-go that there's another man involved in the situation. It's sometimes sometime later that he finds out that it's uh, Secretary Bryce, who he works for. And that's where we have our situation. We get to our big clock core setup. Two guys, they're both sleeping with Susan. And uh, when she does get killed, which is a situation that would be like, it's manslaughter, not not murder, right? Mm-hmm. As Tom was leaving her apartment and Bryce was, or house, and Bryce was entering the house, uh, Bryce was under a bright light, so they saw each other, but Tom was in the dark. And so, again, Tom knows, you know, when he finds out that Susan was killed, he knows that it was Bryce who did it. Bryce just knows that somebody else was there, and he wants to pin it on that guy. Uh, But I wanted to mark this as my number one worst tradecraft. Um, And I'm sure this is just to, like, make sense of Bryce being seen, but not Tom, but, like... First of all, Bryce is the Secretary of Defense, a high political position. He's married. 
we're talking back then. It would have been a scandal if he was caught having an affair. He's parking right in front of her house under the brightest street lamp possible, like right under the street lamp. And 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 I I, I think this is something that someone of his level shouldn't be doing. Like even as a politician, like oh right, up, because he's married. Yeah, yeah he's, he's married. Right, he's married. He's having an affair, and what does he do? He parks right in front of her house under the 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 lamp, the street light, and and it's like even forgetting tradecraft or the fact that he's dealing with intelligence of any capacity. He's a politician, so he would already know not to do something like this. Amateur, you know, this is like straight like rookie mistake for a guy having an affair. I guess. Yeah, like, that's a good call. Bad affair craft? I don't, I don't know. For <laughs> sure. <laughs> but I think he should know at his like level of a politician, especially dealing with intelligence, this is not the best thing to do. Like, like this is just bad counterintelligence. Like, like, like later they're going to make up a story about like a mole. Well, like any foreign intelligence would be having pictures of the secretary of defense, right? And they would know about this affair, even if you're not worried about the press, right? They're going to just, like, throw pictures at you and be like, yo, you're having an affair. We're going to, like – like, this is this is how intelligence work works. Like, they, they basically will, like, punk you into doing what they want you to. Like, that, that's, like, an easy – anyway, that's my piece on that. Even though I didn't, I didn't want to dwell on uh, the fact that Tom is, in fact, Yuri, uh, but it's pretty – it, I think it's pretty bad minus five points for him to call Susan uh, after he leaves um, while, while he knows that Bryce is there. Mm. And I'm, I'm also I mean, bad at fair points. Well, it's, it's bad at fair points, right? Like you say, <laughs> for sure. <laughs> but considering that he's actually Yuri, uh, he should be even more careful. Like that's why I call it minus spy points. Oh no! Absolutely, I I completely agree. I think that was a bad step. Like maybe come back the next day or something, or whatever, or check on her. Uh, but it also built some tension for us as the audience, I guess. So yeah, and I think it's I think it's important evidence that he is, uh, you know, because he's gen he's he's acting like, and and I think it's the movie is giving us evidence that he's genuinely upset, which means he's genuinely into Susan. Which, which the whole first half of the movie, if if it's, I mean, if it's not trying to establish that, then it's really <laughs> fucking up, you know. Yeah, he's, he's really he's really in love with her. Yeah, I think that's the only thing they tried to establish. Right, but being in love does definitely does not excuse you from getting minus five points from the Spies Like Us podcast. In fact, no. often it's the reason. Yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> Spies do fall in love, but that doesn't mean I don't get minus spy points for fucking up. Right, right, right. <laughs> uh, Bryce, obviously, he didn't mean to kill Susan. He's really freaked out about it. Who does he call? He calls, obviously, his personal counsel, right? His his officially assigned right-hand man, uh, Pritchard, who's played by uh, Will Patton. And actually, I'll just really quick say, like, I think Will Patton is probably... I think like the number one reason this movie is rewatchable. Uh, 
I, I think he's really he's really fun in it. Watching him slowly go from so incredibly uh, cool and collected to you know just just gradually like in every scene that he's in, he's like one tick more unhinged. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> right. I would agree with that. I, I I think his performance was definitely the highlight. Not that ever like. Like I think all the actors, it was a great cast. Everybody in it, like, really had a great performance. But I think he really uh, is the star of the show. Yeah, well, and it's—I mean, it's a good thing that him and Hackman and uh, my girl are are so good because Kevin Costner's not good. He's—he's he's never been good. He's—he's he's watchable. He hits his marks, but he always sounds very flat to me. I'm not. Not not. A big I liked fan. him in this. I thought I thought he played the mole playing the guy keeping the secret was pretty good, uh, you know. Despite the dialogue, but that's not his fault, you know. Sure, sure, sure. But uh, Pritchard, and this is also I think a nice, uh, not a not a twist, but a a move that the movie makes is that is that really Bryce is not the villain of the story. He's a bad mm-hmm. guy. He's yeah. he's he's an unlikable guy. He's a sinner. Right. Uh, he 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 obviously lacks some self control uh, in a big way. But uh, you know his his instinct was to go to the police and turn himself in, and he just he just wanted his lawyer there to you know help him navigate that part of it. But right. Pritchard is like, oh no, hell no, and and it's really Pritchard that is like pulling the strings. Uh, through the entire movie and and twisting it into the you know fucked up thing that that it turns out to be it's pretty yeah, it, yeah go ahead it, you know it, like you, you kind of mentioned this when we were watching it that he's like the actual antagonist oh yeah and, or like you, you called him the villain they didn't quite get it till like as things kind of develop yeah like you, you, you were saying Bryce wanted to go to the police and no, it was Pritchard that was like, no, we have to do this for the cause. Uh, we have to sell the story. We have to invent this story about a Russian mole. And he was the one that murdered her, you know? So it's, it's, it's it, 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 like things could have worked out like they should have until, you know, Pritchard steps in and, and crafts this master villainous plot to like, uh, tweak this the narrative, you know, so to speak. Explain, rather. explain it to me. What's his idea? So what he's going to do is, well, like I said, he, there's going to be this big story that there's a Russian mole named Yuri, and it's a matter of national security because there's already like kind of some beef between the CIA and the DOD at this point. That's it's been established in the film, so he's able to kind of play strings in masking evidence. Um, based on national security, and that way he could he could kind of throw this story of uh, Bryce, you know, killing um, Susan under just throw it under the rug, you know, by controlling the evidence and the story because there's uh, an investigation into this Russian mole that has uh, uh, per- penetrated, um, you know. Right, right, because yeah. because the Department of Defense wouldn't have any business messing around with this murder at all, whatsoever. So you got so to right. make you got to find a reason that they can be involved and that they can take control of the situation, 
And so it's got to be somehow a, a matter of national security. And apparently, you know, it's like in a lot of spy movies where they have these like ghost stories of a mole that have been kicking around for years, but there's never <laughs> been any proof kind right. of thing. Um, but he's like, hey, you know, that's that Yuri story. Let's let's say that we have reason to think it was him. Um, so, yeah. Do you do you like his plan? Oh, yeah. Major plus buy points. I was actually considering putting it on my best tradecraft list. It's but pretty good. I, yeah, it's it, I, I think. And, and that's this is this is when the like we were talking about the plot actually starts. Mm-hmm. It's like this moment. Where oh and I, oh, there's one thing I really wanted to point out about this. When Bryce calls Pritchard, the first thing he says is, "I think I call, killed Susan." And I wanted to point that out because uh, in um, like interrogation, uh, you know, books or videos that I've read or watched, um, what the there's a thing when people are trying to lie is they'll try and kind of like soften it up, you know, like and so the way he puts it, I thought it was really really well done. Um, because that, that's kind of something, oh, you know, I, I kind of remember that I did this, or I think I might've done that. Like, that's not like a full on confession or a full on reason to believe that this is your guy, but that's like a, a, a thing to mark, like, oh, I need to investigate this a little further to determine if this, you know, so I, I really liked that. He was like, oh, I think I killed Susan. And then of course, Pritchard shows up and he's just going to clean house. Like he's just like, don't worry, I'll take care of all of this. Right. Well, yeah, and I also think that he's he's supposed to be here in the first stage of of grief or trauma, which is denial, right? right? You know, right. He, he he doesn't want it to be true, <laughs> but yeah. Yeah, yeah. So the so that's so what they're going to do then is they're going to put it under the purview of the CID. And they mention the CID uh multiple times throughout the movie. And I was like, well, who's the CID? Let's go to Google. So CID is kind of a generic term in a way. It's kind of like HR, right? Like there's no mass, there's no single organization called human resources, but Mm -hmm. like every company's got like an HR department and a lot of agencies have with embedded within them something that they will call the CID. It's the criminal investigation department. Mm-hmm. Um, so there were, uh, you know, I found a big list of, of different CIDs that, that exist later in the movie, a journalist that's reporting on the story is going to refer to them as the army CID, which is definitely a big thing. Um, but I, I don't think, I don't think army CID makes sense for what we see in the movie. Cause remember, okay. It is the department of defense. Yeah. They do, uh, oversee like all of the armed forces, right. Don't they, in a, in a way, at least, I mean, technically the president is the commander in chief, but I, I think all of that gets routed through the department of defense. Um, but this really isn't an army issue. It's got nothing to do with the army. Maybe it's just like the movie, the scriptwriter got it slightly wrong. Or I could, for example, posit that maybe the the reporter just got it slightly wrong, right? Because she's just heard yeah. about the story. Um, there's another CID that I think uh, fits what we see happen in the movie much better. The Department of Defense does have its own CID. 
Uh, it's called the DCIS, and it would be uh, really the exact agency that um, that they would like try to move investigation of this murder under that the Secretary of Defense would be like directly involved in. There's one missing person here, though, which is fine. Like, you can't overcomplicate the movie uh, with too many characters, but technically that CID would report to the Inspector General of the, Sec- of the Department of Defense. And so the way that they have it is that, you know, basically this, this CID, whoever it is, they're reporting directly to Bryce and Pritchard, and it, it's not actually, like, it doesn't actually factually check out that the Secretary of Defense would be able to run the CID directly from his office. It would, it would have to go through the Inspector General. There's, 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 a, there's just a chain of command thing that is missing from the movie. But uh, oh. overall, I mean, I think, I think it's cool. I do appreciate also that they... I definitely appreciate that because all of this is super shady um, in like, it would be super shady in, in reality to keep the CIA, the FBI and the Washington police department uh, uh, out of this. Uh, They do nod to the, to the fact that they need to move fast before they get caught doing this, you know, like they, they acknowledge that this is, not how it's supposed to work at all. <laughs> I didn't even understand, too. Like, Bryce uh, said, like, we're going to put you in charge of the investigation. Uh, it's under your purview as, uh, you know, as part of your office. It's not. It's totally not. But that's what they do. They even, uh, you know, n- took the body to a military base, is what's stated. Uh-huh. And didn't even tell Washington PD, like, what happened. I got to right. wonder, like, wouldn't Washington PD eventually, like, get a missing persons report? Like, Well, if this is like a national security thing, they probably right. would have been able to kind of cut through a lot of, like, local red tape, maybe. I buy that. that. Would, I mean, that would, that, would, that would be my guess. You know, um, one of the things when the when Pritchard sends in the goons... That kind of bothered me a little bit, um, and I was like, "Well, well, no. If this is a supranational security issue, they might need to like stop things before something really bad happens." You, you know, like how Pritchard gets like the 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 assassin squad, mm-hmm. Quato and company. Yeah, right. Uh, uh, it it kind of bugged me. Like, like how would he even have the authority for this? Like to just pull some random assassins. And then I was like, well, the setup is that this is a big matter of national security. There's a possible mole. Some of our people could be killed. So we need to get moving and like strike before we're struck type of thing. And I was like, well, I guess guess that kind of works out. What bothers me about that and why I give it minus five points is that, um, like, again, Pritchard is the general counsel to the secretary of the Department of Defense. He's basically his lawyer. There's right. no there's no world in which that guy has access, like direct access to give direct commands to these kind of like what seem like kind of like some badass 
black up wet work kind of guys. Yeah. And there's definitely there's definitely no such guys as those in uh really any CID department. <laughs> definitely right. not definitely not the DCIS. Right. Uh yeah, so I'll I'll yeah, that's my that's my number three worst. Uh again, you know, just I just liked unpacking like, you know, does this whole does this whole like structure of the investigation, how much sense does it make and how much doesn't it? Uh it all functions fine in the movie. Like it doesn't uh-huh. it doesn't nothing, you know, comes out and springs out at you and says like this is not how things are done because most of it is stuff that the movie audience has no idea like how all this structure <laughs> actually works. But that's why we have a podcast to talk about it. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> Over in the the CIA situation, um, that we're we're coming up on another uh, worst tradecraft of mine, which is where uh, okay, so O'Brien is the CIA guy that they're putting Tom Farrell in contact with to to really to try to massage out this Phantom Sub information, and he gets, I mean, he gets some weird vibes. Uh, yeah. You know, around the time that, you know, because basically that's one situation that was supposed to be happening. But then this murder came along and fucked everything up. And now it's, uh, you know, uh, taken over, become a completely different story. But, you know, the CIA guy does report back to the director and says, you know, tells him that he kind of knows there's they're doing some weird shady stuff around there. Uh, you know, they're they're putting up a whole witch hunt. Uh under a sort of thing that really should be our job to take care of. Right. Or the FBI who's, who's actually, let me ask you this. Uh, if, if you have knowledge or opinion on, cause I think what I've read, the FBI is actually in charge of a lot of like, uh, counter intelligence in the U S yeah, that's actually their role. <clears throat> the CIA, like as far as domestic intelli- uh, counterintelligence goes, the FBI, I believe, are the most like the the, the that's like their responsibility. Um, <clears throat> like you know, they, there's always like the the old image of uh, J. Edgar Hoover, you know, going on his like communist witch hunt. You know, <clears throat> like that's because that was their role. Um, it's actually like illegal, I think or at least was for any of the other intelligence agencies to spy quote unquote on, on, on Americans. Right. Isn't, isn't um, the CIA is actually like uh countermanded against doing any operations within the borders of the U S is that true? Or is that just something I heard once? What do you think? I think they weren't supposed to, whether or not they actually did, but I know that there's other things they're allowed to do. And especially like the NSA, as far as like collecting public data. Um, so I'm, I'm sure there's some like gray areas that they can skate around, but yeah, predominantly the FBI is responsible for domestic counterintelligence. Right. Okay. Okay, good. Yeah. That matches what I've heard, but regardless, you know, the CIA has got uh, like uh, an ax to grind against right. Bryce. And the guy tells the CIA director, about what's going on. And he also specifically flags that, you know, that, that one naval guy, Tom, 
he he looked like a guy that would like to have a heart to heart. That's I mean that's the term he uses. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, a man who would like to have a heart to heart. I'm gonna give it minus spy points for not following through on that. Yeah, they don't do anything with it. They just sit there. Yeah, They're like okay, or at least we're not shown a reason why they ignore it. My last question is: Does it? Do you think it ever really makes sense for Tom to not? go straight to the FBI. I mean, he threatens to. Right. Or he, he strongly suggests it. Or he could, for instance, maybe confide in, in the major, uh, the, the black guy that is uh, like running things on the CID side. Did the movie ever give us a solid reason for him to not, you know, just blow it open? This, this might be... Uh the reason for the whole Russian mole being a reality to kind of tie that up. Cause if he went to the FBI, that might compromise his position. Like they might start looking into him. Um, but the other thing is it, I think he's more worried about being caught as, cause he'd become a suspect. They, they would find out that he was sleeping with Susan and and it's kind of like why Pritchard tries to contain everything and keep it from the other departments so that he can kind of control the information and the reporting, you know, and I don't think Tom would want anybody else outside of his like immediate realm of influence because um, then he's going to immediately become a suspect. Okay. So that's the whole like way that they're going to try to, uh, run the investigation and and all that setup, and then I want to give a I want to give a recap of like basically the the second half of the movie, and then we'll come in and and talk about some specifics. Yeah, okay, sounds good. So, um, since they trust Tom, they put him in charge of the of the investigation. At least they put him in charge of the in house stuff. Uh, they're mm-hmm. not they're not telling. It's the CID that's clearly making their own moves going out there, you know, cause they go out and they, they find like the, the boat rental guy, they find the valet at the hotel, uh, that Susan and Tom had visited. Uh, it's not Tom that's giving them those orders to go out and do that investigation. So clearly they're, they're kind of operating on their own, but, uh, they gave Tom the job of basically, like triaging all the intel that's coming in to the department to, into the Pentagon, uh, which is a totally perfect place for Tom to be <laughs> if, <Yeah. laughs> if he wants to slow this investigation down. Um, and that's the whole, that's really the whole fun of the movie and why I always liked it in the first place. This whole, like, you know, uh, the second half of the movie, like being kind of like a trapped in the house, with and and being assigned to find yourself. <laughs> right. When you when you first described that to me, it reminded me of adaptation where like the the one twin brother uh is writing a script and the whole movie you think the twin brother is like an idiot, but like he tells the idea, you know, yeah, it's a murder mystery, and he finds out that he's trying to find himself. I forgot about that. Adaptation is such a good fucking movie. Yeah. Yeah. And so when you brought that up, that's like the first thing I thought of. He's like, he finds out that he's really just trying to find himself. And I was like, wow, 
but no, this is this is not that kind of a, a setup. This is a little bit different. Adaptation is so good because because Nick Cage has basic he has two modes that he does. In every movie, he's either uh the one version of Nick Cage, the the tortured quiet guy, or he's right. like the super crazy guy. Right. And like adaptation, <laughs> let him play both. <laughs> it's so funny. Like this is the best casting ever. Yeah. When Pritchard goes through the apartment, he found a Polaroid that was kind of blurry. And so he believed that that was the guy they were looking for, you know, being Tom that spotted Bryce. And um, he takes that Polaroid out and then the investigations team goes through and finds other stuff in the house. He comes back, I I guess, at headquarters, wherever they're at. And he he, he like kind of, just, you know, suddenly he goes like, oh, is this the evidence from her apartment? And they're like, yeah. And he just kind of slips a Polaroid uh, to, you know, in the whole pile. And he's like, oh, what's this? Like, like he, he just found it. Um, and and uh, so I, I wanted to name that my number two best trade craft is like returning the Polaroid so that he could kind of control the information, get the information ahead of time, set it up. And then and then he like like plants it as like a point of significance. Um, I, I feel like when I've played werewolf games, that's a good way to get yourself looking suspicious. But I guess in this situation, it was a really good play for him to say, Oh, what's this? You know, but I, I like, I like the idea of him uh, one uh, confirming that that's the pile of evidence and two, like, like planning it back or returning it to, to the pile. Right. I, yeah, I'll give that, I'll definitely give that plus five points. I would slightly question how he got his hands on like an official evidence bag. I think they're supposed to be like a little more careful about that kind of shit. Yeah. But uh, yeah, whatever. Let's cut it here for now. We have got the essential situation described, the whole convoluted way that Tom has gotten himself into the unenviable position of trying to investigate himself and provide evidence that would frame him as a KGB mole in the Pentagon. Next week, we'll come back, settle in, and watch how he tries to thread this tricky little needle. As always, the best way to make sure you don't miss out on that is to hit the subscribe button on iTunes, Google, or your favorite podcast app. Also, you can find updates on our Facebook page or website, spieslikeus.net. And please, if you can help us out and give us some feedback by rating us and leaving comments. We're always trying to improve the show and your thoughts would be a big help. The preceding transmission sampled the songs Ice Cold by Audio Nautics, Enter the Party by Kevin McLeod, and sound effects from freesound.org. Attributions and links are found at spieslikeus.net. Editing by Todd Hostetler.